Well, we are at the final little bit here of our summer series called The Life. We are studying the life of Christ. But it's a little bit of a different study. We're not just kind of going back 2,000 years to talk about the life of Jesus. We're really getting to the heart of the life of Christ because the life of Christ is ours to live today. We get to continue living the life of Christ. You see, we the church are called the body of Christ, right? That means we get to advance the cause of Christ, using our language here from our mission statement. We are advancing the cause of Christ together. So as we study the life of Christ, we're moving that life forward even now. Ten weeks ago, we started at the baptism of Jesus. This is where Jesus really symbolically takes our place, even at the beginning of his ministry with baptism. It's as though he's standing in our place, uh, ready to be washed and forgiven and renewed. And then he goes right from his baptism to the desert to be tempted. And as he's in the desert, he is fasting for 40 days. He is literally starving to death, and he meets the enemy, uh, the devil, and he conquers the temptations of the enemy, preparing him for his ministry and life of suffering, tackling the darkness of this world. Then he calls the 12 disciples, and the 12 disciples are called to be fishers of men. In other words, to capture the world by the love and grace of God. And then he begins his public ministry, and his public ministry seems to be all about breaking the rules in order to bring people to God. So he breaks the rules about children not speaking to adults. That was forbidden at the time of Christ. And he rebukes the adults and welcomes the children, and that's God's heart for the next generation. That's why we're so passionate about the next generation and invest a ton in our children's and youth ministry. Then he met the woman at the well, and as he meets the woman at the well, he breaks all the cultural and religious norms of, of not talking to a person of a different race, not speaking to women in public, not associating with people who are immoral or labeled sinners. He reaches out to this woman, and he gives her kindness and grace, what he calls living water. And then he heals a paralytic. The friends of the paralytic tear apart a roof because it was very crowded in there and they, and they set their, their paralytic friend down and Jesus does something wonderful. He forgives his sin and heals him. And it shows that there's a community of friends around this paralytic, but then Jesus brings him into a, a community with God. Wonderful vision for our ministry today. Then there's the adulterous woman, a woman caught in the act of adultery. The law says stone her to death. Jesus says he who is without sin, what? cast the first stone. He gives her grace and forgiveness and guides her to a better life. Last week, we talked about eating with sinners. Ryan did a great job talking about that. Uh, just naturally connecting with everybody everywhere, not this sacred secular divide and hanging around only with Christians and sort of ignoring non-Christians. No, befriend everybody everywhere. That's what Jesus did to bring the grace of God to everyone around you. So what we see is a theme through the ministry of Jesus Christ, and the theme is very obvious, that Jesus will break every cultural and religious norm to bring the world close to God. He does this time and time again. He's breaking rules, breaking rules, breaking norms, societal norms, cultural norms, religious norms, in order to, what he says, seek and save the lost. People who are marginalized, voiceless, people labeled sinners, outcasts, rejected, Jesus will go to any length to get to know them, befriend them, and give them the grace of God. That was his single-minded determination, and it cost him heavily. That determination to break societal, cultural, religious norms, to bring people close to God cost him dearly. He was outright rejected in his own hometown, bringing shame on his family. As his message gets more sharp, as he's you know, kind of countering the culture that keeps people away from God, he makes more enemies, and thousands of people start peeling off from his ministry. He was labeled an enemy from the capital city of Jerusalem. He was branded as a heretic by religious leaders, even being accused of preaching and teaching and working for the devil. There were many threats on his life. 
throughout the ministry of Jesus. Now today, we're gonna talk about a series of incidents that I could argue were directly responsible for Jesus going to the cross. What Jesus did, as we'll study here today, was so profoundly countercultural and such a finger in the eye of the religious power brokers that it cost him his life. Today we're gonna talk about Jesus breaking the fourth commandment. Did you hear me right? Breaking the fourth commandment. Now that might just mess us up a little bit because if we grew up in church, we know that Jesus is holy, that Jesus is perfect. And we know that the commandments, the big 10 commandments come from God. So if Jesus is perfect and the 10 commandments come from God, it is impossible for Jesus to break a commandment. But as we study these stories, I think it's impossible to, to come to the conclusion that he didn't break one of the big 10 commandments. Here's the fourth commandment that we're talking about. It's the Sabbath day. Exodus 28 through 10. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. So if you haven't been raised in church, the Sabbath day is in, in the Jewish week, a Saturday. That they are called by God to work the six days, but rest on the Saturday. They are to cease from their work. And as they cease from their work, it's sort of a, a nod to God that after God created the heavens and the earth, he rested from his work. And so it's a way to kind of commune with God and, and to enter rest. Also, God uh, re, uh, released the Jewish people from slavery into a land of rest. So it's kind of looking forward to the promise of God that there is a land of rest and prosperity now and forever. And, and so it's a cultural distinctive of the Jewish people. It's a religious distinctive of the Jewish people. So our question today is, did Jesus break the sacred law of Moses by working on the Sabbath, by working on a Saturday? Now, the Sabbath is so central to the Jewish culture and so central to the law of God that desecrating the Sabbath is a capital crime. Exodus 20, uh, 31, 14 says this, observe the Sabbath because it is holy to you. Anyone who desecrates it is to be put to death. Those who do any work on that day must be cut off from their people. That's serious stuff, right? I mean, that's quite a law. Can you imagine if, uh, if there was a law in Temecula that if you do work on the, on the Sabbath, on a Saturday, you were to be cut off from the people. You were to be excommunicated from the city. And if you go one step further and desecrate the Sabbath, you would be put to death publicly. I mean, wow. That is stark. That is how important and how sacred this day was to the Jewish people. But here's the problem. The problem in the Bible is that there's not a lot of definition as to what work is. The Bible says don't work on, on the Sabbath, but what is the definition of work? There are a few dozen references to the Sabbath. There are a couple of strict prohibitions that are spelled out. But by and large, work is not defined. And so the religious leaders do what religious leaders do. You know, religious leaders get together, and wherever the Bible's vague, we've got to create all kinds of specific rules for people, right? And so the Hebrews developed the Mishnah. The Mishnah is a writing outside the Bible that really details the Ten Commandments, what God wants of us from the Ten Commandments. Now, the Mishnah provided 39 prohibitions, things that you could not do on the Sabbath. So yesterday was the Sabbath. I hope you did not tie anything. It's prohibited in the Mishnah. If you tied your shoes, I'm sorry, you have to leave your city. <laughs> did you untie anything? That's a violation. Did you smooth anything? That's work. You cannot smooth. No smoothing. Had a smoothie. No, you can have a smoothie. No smoothing. 
did you measure? You cannot measure anything according to the Mishnah on a Saturday. So th- these are the prohibitions. They're not in the Bible again. They're just religious leaders who say, the Bible's too vague. We have to make it more specific by creating more laws. Now, in addition to the Mishnah, there's what's called the Halakha. And the Halakha are scenarios. Because even with the 39 prohibitions, there's still kind of vagaries out there. Okay, I can't tie anything, but what if my goat gets himself all wrapped up in a rope? What do I do? I'm paralyzed, right? I can't untie the rope, but I can't let my goat die. What do I do? So the halakha was written, and there are thousands of possible scenarios created so that people could reference them to determine if they can or cannot do that specific thing on a Saturday. Here's one example. There is a careful distinguishing between wearing and carrying. Uh, Ladies, do you have any um, hair clips, bobby pins? I'm not gonna ask you to raise your hand because that's awkward and dumb question. But according to the halakha, you could on a Saturday put a bobby pin in your hair, but if you carried it in your hand, that's work. Prohibited. There are thousands of those scenarios. The Talmud lists three reasons why women would potentially die during childbirth. One of the three reasons why a woman could potentially die during childbirth is if she didn't obey the Sabbath sufficiently. That's just religion, right? Just religious nonsense. You create all of these rules for people because they certainly can't think on their own. We're not gonna let the Bible just kind of exist in in mystery or or we're not even gonna settle on, on the point or the heart of the command. We've gotta get very detailed and we've gotta argue about all the little minutia of these laws and commands. And then we have to enforce them by fear and threats and guilt. That's just typical religion. Now there is one very specific prohibition in the Bible about the Sabbath. Exodus 34, 21. Six days you shall labor, but on the seventh day you shall rest. Even plowing and harvesting, you must rest. Is that pretty clear? The Bible isn't clear on a lot of things when it comes to specifically defining what's working and what's not. But here, Exodus 34, 21, you cannot harvest. Then here comes Jesus. Here comes Jesus. He breaks all the cultural and religious norms of his day to reach people with love and grace and get them into a right relationship with God. So he and his disciples are walking on a Sabbath. Now they're already kind of in trouble already. You were allowed to walk on a Sabbath a little bit. Uh, they didn't have their, you know, Apple phones or whatever they're called to, to do a step count. So they had to keep the counts on their head. On a Saturday, you had to keep the counts on your head because you could only step so many times. After a certain number of steps, you had to rest for a certain period of time, and then you can get up and walk a few more steps, right? So the disciples are already in a little bit of trouble by walking on a Saturday, and they're walking in a field. And as they're walking in a field, they are hungry, and they happen to be in a field of corn. You see what's gonna happen here? It's gonna be so ugly. What's about to happen is so ugly. You ready? At the time, Jesus went through the cornfields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some ears of corn and eat them on a Saturday. That's work. The Bible says you cannot harvest on a Saturday. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on a Sabbath. 
His disciples pick the corn and eat it. It is scandalous. It is shameful. At the very least, they are to be put out of their families and put out of their cities. At worst, they could be killed for such a thing. Now, there's a big debate as to whether Jesus actually broke the fourth commandment or not. But here's, again, Exodus 34, 21. Even harvesting you must eat. There is no way around the reality that Jesus technically broke the fourth commandment. That might be a little bit difficult for some of us to, to kind of swallow. We like our stories nice and neat and clean and tidy, right? This is not tidy. Jesus harvested on the Sabbath. But here's what I think is the reality. If the law is about clear do's and don'ts, then Jesus broke the law. His disciples in particular did a don't. He did a don't. You don't do a don't. You don't do the don'ts, you do do the do's, but you never do a don't, right? That's just the law, and he did a don't. He broke the technical you know, reality of the fourth commandment. Scandalous, absolutely scandalous, especially for somebody who claimed to be a religious leader, right? But check this out. Perhaps the law isn't about clear do's and don'ts. Perhaps there's a deeper, more profound purpose of the law, and that's what we're gonna talk about in our remaining time together. What is the deeper purpose of the law? Jesus is actually tearing down the notion that the law is about technical compliance with a whole bunch of lists of do's and don'ts. He's tearing down that law to reveal the heart of God. That's what he's all about. So he begins a a debate with the Pharisees. These are the religious leaders that were trying to catch him doing something on the Sabbath that was wrong. He begins this little debate. He says, haven't you read what David did? Now, David is King David. This is a period before he was king. He was starving, and uh, he, he and his companions were hungry. He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread. If you come from a religious background, that would be the same as like bathing in holy water. You just don't do it, right? You don't eat the consecrated bread, but David did it, and David wasn't judged for it in the Old Testament. Or haven't you read in the law that the priests on Sabbath duty in the temple desecrate the Sabbath, and yet they are innocent? In the Bible, there are priests that are assigned to the temple duties on a Saturday. Stuff has to get done. They're not judged for working on the Sabbath because there's a greater cause. There's a deeper, more profound purpose, right? 16 times in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 16 times is recorded Jesus kind of breaking the technicalities of the Sabbath in order to reveal something more profound. Essentially, Jesus is saying this, stop peddling your religious nonsense and start caring for people. This is the point of the law. The point of the law is to care for people. The point of the law is to bring goodness, not to put on heavy burdens of guilt and shame and threats and endless lists of do's and don'ts. The law was meant for good to help us all, but the religious people turn that around and and make it really a thing of great harm. Jesus says, stop peddling your religious nonsense and start caring for people. We could put it this way. Kindness and compassion is a better guide to godly behavior than rules defined by religious experts. Jesus says, stop worrying about navigating obedience to the law. It's a waste of time. Start worrying about the most important thing, which is kindness and compassion. That's why Jesus says, all of the law can be summarized in one commandment to love God and to love your neighbor. That's what we have to worry about. So instead of nitpicking every little law and wondering if if we're sinning or not and having all kinds of debates about what is or isn't right, instead, let's have our guide as kindness, compassion, and love. Now, 
as I say every once in a while, I grew up in the dark ages of the church, 1980s, 1990s, and uh, there were endless debates about what is or isn't a sin. And maybe you're a part of those kinds of religious communities. What is or isn't a sin? Constantly arguing about what is and isn't a sin. What can and, and can't you say? And so in youth group and even early in, in my ministry, it's, well, what words can't you say? There's the, the big seven swear words. You know what they are? Let me tell you, they're, no, I'm not gonna do that. There's the big seven swear words, right? And of course, in Christian communities, I never say one of those big seven swear words. Oh, the horror. But then there's this list of maybe dozens of other words that are, aren't really good kind of crew that sort of approach the line. Well, can you use those words? Is it right? Is it wrong? Is it sin? Is it not? All kinds of discussion about money, you know, tithe is always a big deal in church. You know, is it a command to give 10% of our money to the work of God? You know, there's a couple of models of that in the Bible, but is that a rule, right? And do I give 10% before taxes or after taxes? What if I tithe my time? Can I back off on the money? I mean, there's just all kinds of debates about what we should give. What's the law? What's the rule? Uh, what about the use of our time? Can we, can we listen to secular entertainment? Can we go to secular movies? I mean, back in my day, and it was a dark day, all these rules, what we can and cannot do, none of it was in the Bible, just things that we talk about. Religious leaders getting together, debating what we can and can't do. Sexuality was a big time deal, especially you know, in youth group. Um, it's almost as though there's this deal, it may not be so true today, but definitely was back in my day. You drop your kids off to church, and you basically say, hey, a youth pastor, children's pastor, make sure they don't mess up. That's your job, right? I'm out. And so youth pastors would be very serious about their job. We gotta keep our kids moral. We gotta keep our kids in line. And so, you know, when it comes to sex before marriage, it's the youth pastor's job to make sure those kids don't have sex before marriage, right? There's some just weird dynamic about that. And so the Bible has this vision for sexuality and human nature just goes totally counter to that vision. And so the youth pastor has got to navigate this stuff. And so what are the tools the youth pastor, you know, uses? Well, you spend endless amounts of time talking about what is or isn't sin. How far can you go in your premarital relationship sexually before you cross the line into sin? Fully one half of the church calendar for youth group was devoted to that question. What can and can't you do? How much can I get away with before I cross the line to sin? I'll spare you the gory details, but I'm telling you tons of conversation around that. And the reality is, statistically, 97% of Christians have sex before marriage anyway, so none of it works. It's just endless debate about religious lines, and that endless debate doesn't work. And it's also, you know, backed up by threats. If you have sex before marriage, you're gonna catch some filthy disease. Here's a VHS tape about filthy sexual diseases. Um, if you have sex before marriage, you will always regret it. You know, and I, the whole line of you take every single sex partner with you into your marriage as though they're watching. These are the things I was like told. Um, it will ruin your marriage. You will not have a healthy sex life, you know, as you're married, if you have sex before marriage. It's just, it's like telling somebody you could die during childbirth by not keeping the Sabbath. We do the same thing. Now, I think thankfully the church is beginning to realize how silly that is. I mean, how futile, stupid and ineffective that is. It really, it's all driven by fear. Now there's a, a different way of approaching it. And, and we are certainly trying this with our own kids, right? Um, and I've got two daughters, two sons. When it comes to the sex talk, obviously my Wife takes the daughters, I take the sons. It's best that way. 
So what I try to do with my boys is to paint a picture of the beautiful gift of sexuality. It is an extraordinary gift, especially human sexuality. There's animal sexuality, that's just you know reproduction. Human sexuality is so much richer than that, and it is very, very beautiful. We are sexual beings. We're actually gonna talk about this in September. September's gonna be awesome. It's gonna, it's gonna be rad. Let's go back, let's just really full on the 80s. It's gonna be rad. So uh, sex, human sexuality is an incredible gift. Now God has designed a, a best for the gift of sexuality. And the best for the gift of sexuality is that it be sacramental. In other words, it's a physical expression of a spiritual union. The spiritual union is, mar- is marriage, two souls united together in God. And, and as two souls couple, the coupling of bodies is the physical expression of a spiritual reality. Now, isn't that beautiful? Now, it does involve some restraint. It does involve some commitments, and it's not exactly easy, right? But there's this beautiful vision. And for my boys, we just try to paint that beautiful vision. And, and our hope is that there would be some kind of a pull towards that beautiful vision. Now, along the way, they are likely going to stumble. And I'm not gonna be managing their stumbling, right? I'm not gonna be grilling them after every date. I'm not gonna be, I mean, we're not there being their kind of moral cop. We're their parents, you know, we put healthy guidelines, but we're moving them towards a beautiful vision of sexuality. If they don't fully live into that beautiful vision of sexuality, which 3% of Christians do, it's not the end of the world. It's not gonna ruin their marriage, right? They're not gonna take their sex partners into the bedroom with them. They're, you know, if they're careful, they're probably not gonna get a disease. I'm not making light of this. I want my kids to follow the biblical model of sexuality. But most Christians don't. And it's not the end of the world because obedience is not God's primary priority. It is not. God's primary priority is our well-being. And so he gives us this design and says, the more you live into this design, trust me, the better off things are gonna be. If you don't live into the beauty of my perfect design, and who does? There's grace, there's forgiveness, there's restoration, and we keep moving forward, right? If we hyperventilate about the technical do's and don'ts, all we're doing is peddling religion the same way the Pharisees did, right? the same way the Pharisees did. So the spirit of the law is not about technical compliance, but the heart of God to help and to lead us into a better life. I wanna show you Matthew 12, eight. Matthew 12, eight, Jesus says this. He says, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. As they're having this big debate about what's right and what's wrong. Is it right to eat consecrated bread? Is it right to pick an ear of corn? Is it right to work in the temple as a priest on a Sabbath? They're having all this arguing, right? What ends up happening is Jesus says this incredible statement. The son of man is Lord of the Sabbath. He says, I'm in charge. What was he claiming? He was claiming to have the authority of the Lord God Almighty himself. He was claiming to be the God of the commandments. He decides what is good and what is right and what is moral. And, 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 and as he tweaks the technicality of the fourth commandment, he ends up revealing the heart of God. And the heart of God was to bring care and kindness and compassion to this world. And so they're in the field. From the field, they go to the synagogue. And in the synagogue is a man with a shriveled hand. A man with a shriveled hand was there looking for a reason to bring charges against Jesus. The Pharisees asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? They knew what Jesus was gonna do. They knew Jesus was a man of kindness and compassion. 
So it was very convenient for the Pharisees, these religious self-righteous hypocrites, to see a man with a shriveled hand meet Jesus on a Saturday. They were, they were baiting Jesus. What are you going to do? Jesus tells a story. And the stories of Jesus are so powerful and profound. He says, hey, if a man loses a sheep on a Saturday, he's going to work to find it and bring it back. Everybody's nodding their head. Of course, it's your livelihood. Jesus says this, how much more valuable is a person than a sheep? Therefore, it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Jesus is redefining the Sabbath. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'm telling you right now, doing good on the Sabbath is absolutely permitted. He technically, again, broke the fourth commandment because you could only heal a life-threatening situation on a Saturday. This man's hand was not life-threatening. Jesus tweaks the technicality of the law to reveal the heart of the Father. And the heart of the Father is kindness and compassion. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched out his hand and it was completely restored just as sound as the other. He's breaking the technicality of the fourth commandment to reveal the heart of kindness, heart of compassion. Then Jesus says what I think is one of the most profound statements in the entire scripture. I'm gonna put it in the top five. One of the top five most important truths of the scripture, he says right here. He said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. This is so critically important here. The Sabbath was made for man. Why is that so important? It's important because the, the religious mind believes that, that the, God gave the law for his benefit. In other words, God is pretty upset. God is generally mad. He's generally angry at us because we fail. So he gives the law. He gives the law to say, hey, guys, good luck. Here's what you need to do in order to earn my favor, in order to earn my goodness, in order to earn answered prayers or earn eternal life. God gives the law for his own benefit. And the more we obey him, the better he feels about us. Isn't that kind of the standard religious deal? The more we obey him, the more he loves us. What does Jesus say? That God actually gives the, the commandments for our benefit. God gave us the law as a gift to us. See, the law was given for our good, not God's good. He gave it to us as a gift. It, it, it requires us changing what we think about God. You see, God is not some temperamental, insecure, petulant king that must be appeased. He's our father who wants the best for us in his creation. When we look at the law, if we think God is an insecure, petulant king who needs to be appeased by our obedience, our whole view of God is skewed. That's the religious view of God. Jesus came to tear that down and to reveal God as a heavenly father who gave us the law out of love. He gives us the law out of love. He simply wants the best for us. He wants the best for us. I'll give you an example. My whole family is in Texas. Um, God help them out there. It is hot and humid, right? And I don't go to Texas twice a year. I'm not gonna take two weeks of my vacation to go to Texas. Not gonna happen, right? So I stay here by myself one week of the summer, get kind of a lot of stuff done. I'm okay for about two days. And then I have this deep loneliness that sets into depression and here I am uh, today. Uh, they're coming back Tuesday. I can't wait. So as, um, as they leave, my wife, my, my lovely wife, thinks of me and she does shopping the week before she leaves because she knows I can't care for myself. She just knows that. She got over that a long time ago. I can't care for myself. She knows I will not cook for myself. I won't put in that much work for food. I just, just won't happen. 
So she's got to buy these Costco frozen things. And she organizes them in our freezer and she walks me through a little orientation. Hey, honey. And she's totally condescending appropriately when she says this. And I feel like a two-year-old when I hear it. Here's a list. Here's where the, you know, the teriyaki chicken you like so much. Yeah, I I know. It's right here. And then there's taquitos. You're a big fan of taquitos. Yes, thank you. It's right here. And just easy, easy, quick stuff. So she lays it all out out in the freezer. And she says, you know, we have living animals. And the family would love to have those animals still alive when we get back. And so here's the list with the dog. Here's the list with the chickens, you know, and, 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 and off we go. And they leave kind of nervously. Is dad going to keep everybody alive, including himself? Is the house still going to be here, right? She gives me a list. Now, why does she give me that list? It's for my good, right? That list is for my good. If I follow the list, my life is a lot better than if I don't. If I don't follow the list, my wife doesn't really care, Right? So I starve. She, she has life insurance. She's good, fine, right? So the list is given for my benefit. That's why God gave the 10 commandments. He gave the 10 commandments as a list for our benefit. It's not our ladder to get to God's approval. God is not angry with us, waiting for us to obey so he can be happy with us. He's not a petulant child king. He's a heavenly father who loves us and gave us a list that says, you do this, you're gonna be good. You don't do some things in here, it's just not gonna go well for you. I'm telling you, the more you live into this list, the better things are gonna be. It's a gift, you're welcome. You guys' priority is not our obedience. He's more secure than that. Believe me, if you disobey God this afternoon, he's not gonna go pitch a giant fit, whine and moan and cry, and then work to get you back. A lot of what we think about God. That's not who he is. His priority is not our obedience. In fact, his priority is our well-being. And and the more we do what he says to do, the better off we're going to be. And that's what God wants from us, right? In fact, the commands are given as a gift for our well-being. Give you a couple of big picture reasons why. The Ten Commandments are a gift to civilize humankind. Before law came... The, the ancient world was a mess, and there are still parts of the world that are a mess. Before the law, there is a power paradigm. A power paradigm without the law is the most moral thing you can do is be the most powerful person. That's the law paradigm. You dominate people. You even dominate your family. You dominate your neighbor. You dominate the neighboring tribe. You take slaves. You exert violence. By brute force, you establish yourself as powerful and in charge. You will have wealth, you will have provision, you will have prosperity, you'll have control. That's the power paradigm. Without law, human nature is power paradigm and it's gross. So God looks at the landscape of what we have done to his world that he loves so much and he says, these people need a gift, I'm gonna give them the law. The law goes from a power paradigm to a humanitarian paradigm. The 10 commands brought humanitarian order to the world. The Ten Commandments basically establish how we are to treat each other. Let's have a God-centered life, not a self-centered life. That's a good thing. Let's not steal from each other. Let's not kill each other. Let's not take each other's spouses, right? Just the basics. Don't kill each other. Don't take each other's stuff. Don't lie about each other. That's pretty much the Ten Commandments. It's a gift to bring humanitarian order. So the Ten Commandments brought humanitarian order to the world, but the Ten Commandments are also a gift to better our own lives. So instead of thinking of the commandments as things I have to do to earn some things from God, think of the commandments as an incredible gift, right? The Ten Commandments and the Old Testament law invites us to honor God. That's much better than a self-centered life. 
It invites us to treat each other well, respect one another's property, respect one another's reputation, uh, to live out our sexuality with dignity, not like animals, uh, to treat the poor, the immigrant, the refugee with dignity. The law invites us to be fair with all people, and the law invites us to have rhythms of rest. That's the commandments. Doesn't it sound like if we pretty well aligned our life with the commandments that our life would be better? What do you think? I think so. The commandments are a gift. God gave us the commandments for our benefits, for our benefit. See, God is not an angry judge waiting for us to break a commandment so he can ruin our lives to get us back. That is not who he is. He's a loving heavenly father, like my wife who gave me the list. Our father gives us a list and says, you might wanna try this. Believe me, you're gonna be better off. He wants what's best for us. We're made in his image. He wants us to live in the benefit of how he's designed this world. He wants humankind to live in the benefit of how he's designed this world. But I'm telling you, we need more than law. The law is a great gift to civilize us, to humanize us. The law is a great gift to kind of align our lives with the design of God, which is just better. But we need more than the law. The law cannot make us perfect. No matter how hard we try, the law cannot make us perfect. No matter how hard we try, obeying the law does not forgive our failures and all of us have failed. Every single one of us have failed. We need more than law, we need grace. So Jesus came to tweak the technicality of the law to show us the heart of the heavenly father, but then the heart of the heavenly father was most fully expressed when his son Jesus Christ not only showed us who the father is, but gave his life on a cross to take our failures upon himself, to take the penalty of our failures upon himself so that we would be forgiven. And through Christ and through God's grace through Christ, we have a right relationship with God that has nothing to do with our obedience to the law, nothing whatsoever. God's priority is not obedience to the law. God's priority is our well-being. He started with the law, but he ends with Jesus Christ. John 1 says that the law came through Moses, but grace and truth comes through Jesus Christ. When Jesus breathed his last breath and he died on the cross, he sealed the promise of God to forgive our sin by grace, by grace alone, through Christ alone, and we receive that through faith alone. I'm gonna close in prayer, and as I do, we're gonna just embrace God's grace. And we're gonna look forward to next Sunday. Next Sunday is really gonna be a powerful time together. We're gonna talk about the cross of Christ next Sunday. If there's ever a time to invite somebody to see and feel and experience the grace of God, next week is going to be very, very memorable. So I would urge you, strongly urge you to not only be here, but to bring people alongside. It's gonna be a time of, of, of seeing the revealed grace of God through Christ in such a powerful and profound way because the cross, as Jesus says, is the full measure of love for us. And love is what ultimately brings us to God in an unbroken and unbreakable way, by grace, through Christ alone. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the grace and goodness that you give us through Jesus Christ. You gave us the law through Moses, and it was an act of kindness and goodness by showing us your heart. Your heart is for us, not against us. You want us to, to live civilly. You want us to live in a humanitarian way, not killing each other and, and not... Um, just jockeying for power and exercising violence. God, you gave us the law to civilize and humanize us. We thank you for that. You gave it for our benefit. Thank you that you gave us the law to, to align us more with a life that, that lives in the benefit of how you've designed this life to be. 
that we would live a a God-centered life, not a self-centered life, that we would treat each other well, that we would not kill or steal or take another spouse. We wouldn't lie about one another. We would have a rhythm of rest. God, you gave us the law for our benefit. We thank you for that. But God, no matter how much we obey, we cannot forgive ourselves and we cannot bring ourselves into a right relationship with you. That's something only you can do. And you do it all on your own by grace through Jesus Christ. He came to bring forgiveness. As he lays his life down on a cross, he pays for the sins of the world in full. And as he rises again from the dead, he gives us new and eternal life. So God, we know that we are forgiven and we know there's nothing that separates us from you. And we know we will live with you in an unbreakable way now and forever because of your free gift of grace given through Jesus Christ. We receive that love. We receive that mercy. Help us to live that out in a way that declares to the world your love for them. In Christ's name we pray, amen.